Dear Father, again we pray. We can't pray too much. And we pray again for the Holy Spirit to please be here. Lord, you know I'm uh, very small and I want Jesus to increase as I decrease. And we all want to hear your voice. We want to sense the Holy Spirit and to have your direction. So we pray that you will bless right now and that you will use these recordings to ripple out around the world to instruct your people on the message of Christ our righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, Righteousness. Righteousness by faith. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is a verse that I think we all know. This is a verse that uh, my family, when I do, uh, I dabble playing guitar sometimes, and I know how to play a little song called Seek Ye First, the Kingdom of God. How many of you have heard that? It's a well-known song, campfire song. You know that. A little boy knows it. And it's based on this verse, Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus said, seek, and what's that next word? Seek ye, and then first. Right, seek ye first. That's the word I was looking for. The kingdom of God And what else? And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. So whose righteousness are we to seek? Yeah, his righteousness. It's not our righteousness that we're looking for. And we should be seeking for this. Seeking for his righteousness, Jesus said. And once we find that righteousness then everything else will be added to us. In other words, that's really the basis of everything. That's the most important thing that we can do, is to seek the righteousness of God. Now, when we talk about righteousness by faith, it's a term that we're all familiar with. We've probably heard it a a zillion times. Those of you who have grown up in the church have heard it over and over and over and over and over again. There's all kinds of different views on righteousness by faith. And if I were to ask, uh, you know, the average crowd, I don't know exactly what all of you would say, but if I were to ask the average crowd, what is righteousness, I'd probably get quite a lot of different definitions. And I have learned in my journey and in my studies that understanding what righteousness is is absolutely critical to this whole topic. We need, to, we need to define righteousness. Now, if you have your, your book, a copy of my book that you've been given, most of you have been given, uh, God's Last Message, Christ Our Righteousness, I want you to turn to page 31. Page 31. And this is, there's a quotation here from... Wagner, and the, the reference, the footnote there is number three, and for the benefit of those who are not here and don't have this book and who are listening to this as a recording, this is from E.J. Wagner's little book. It's called Living by Faith, pages nine and ten, reprinted by Layman Ministry News. And years ago when I was at Weimar trying to figure this out, I remember reading this quote. This is page 31, 30 30 and 31. I read this quote, and it really just spoke to me. And what's what's happening here is Wagner is talking about the, the term righteousness, the righteousness of God, 
Romans chapter 1, verse 17 talks about how I'm not ashamed. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. And then he talks about the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. So Wagner comments on this in your book here, page 30 at the bottom. It says, this expression, and the expression has to do with the righteousness of God. This expression has been the subject of much learned discussion by theologians, and very few of them are agreed as to its meaning. The fact that learned men are disagreed in regard to it need not frighten us with the thought that it cannot be understood. For we read that the things which have been hidden from the wise and the prudent are revealed to the babes. If we are but simple enough to accept the obvious scripture meaning as explained by the scriptures, we need not be in darkness. So I was reading that when I was at Weimar and I thought, okay, keep going. (laughs) Tell me what it is. And then he says, uh, next paragraph, one of the greatest causes of the failure of many people to understand the book of Romans, and indeed any other portion of scripture, is a failure to hold to first principles and Bible definitions. Men attempt to define some terms according to their theological training, and they find it hard work to make them fit. Then if they at any time accept the Bible definition of a term, They do not adhere to it, but give it some other meaning the next time they meet with it. This can lead to nothing else but confusion. And isn't that true? The cause of the difficulty in understanding this text, which he's commenting on Romans 1.17, is a failure to cling to the Bible definition of the term, the righteousness of God. And then he says, we have already seen that it is an expression indicating God's character, and that character is set forth in the Ten Commandments. And what Wagner then does in his little book, and he does this in many other places in his writings, is he proceeds to quote Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse, showing that the term righteousness is defined by the Ten Commandments which is an expression of the character of God. Now, I was talking with uh, Elder Mischief a little while ago, and he was thrilled that we were going to take a look at some Bible verses. He said, show, show us in the Word of God. So let me just uh, get a couple of volunteers here. Somebody find Psalm 119, verse 172. If you, and then somebody else find Isaiah 51, verse 7. And then somebody else find Romans chapter 9, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. And then someone else, Romans 9, 31. Okay, Romans, okay, now we're going to save Romans 9, 31. We're going to use that the last one. So who's got Psalm 119, verse 172? Okay, you've got it? Okay, so say it out loud, nice and loud. My tongue shall speak of your word. For all your commandments are righteousness. Okay, my tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Okay, next text, Isaiah 51, 7. Who's got it? We have it here. Wait till you get the mic so we can get this on the recording. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Okay, thank you. That's good. 
Right, so, so here's God talking. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. So he's using righteousness as a, a phrase that is defined by his law. Okay, next text, uh, Romans 8, 4. We've got this over here. Okay, over here we've got it over here. All right. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Okay, the, notice the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. Okay, let's go to Romans. I think you had it, this young lady over here. You had Romans 9 over here. Romans 9, 31. And let me, hold on just a second. Let me open my Bible because I want to zero in on this text. This is very significant. Uh, let me get it to you. Okay, Romans 9, 31. All right, why don't you read that? All right, Romans 9, 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Okay, stop. Thank you. All right, that's, that's good. So we've looked at Isaiah 51.7. We've looked at Psalm 119, verse 172. We've looked at uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Now we look at Romans 9.31. And there are many other verses that we can look at. And I just want to zero in again on verse 31. This is so powerful. powerful. It talks about Israel, the whole nation of Israel. It says, they followed after the law of righteousness. So there, Paul uses righteousness in connection with the law. Are we all clear on that? We see this over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible. And Israel was following after the law of righteousness. They were trying to get the law of righteousness. They were trying to keep the law of righteousness, but they, it says they have not attained to the law of righteousness. They tried to keep the law. They tried to get righteousness, but they didn't get it. And notice the reason why they didn't get it. What's the next verse say? The next verse says, Paul says, wherefore or why not? And then he says, because they sought it not by faith. So they pursued it, but they didn't get it. And the reason why they didn't get it was because they didn't follow. They didn't seek it by faith. Now go back to your book, God's Last Message, Christ our righteousness, there's a one sentence right in the middle of the book, or the ch this page, page 31. We just read about Wagner talking about definitions. Page 31, right in the middle, it says, Ellen White agreed. And there's a quote from the book Steps to Christ, where she says, righteousness is defined by the 10 precepts given by the Lord on Mount Sinai. Now, does Ellen White's definition agree with the Bible? Yes, it does. So we see it in the Bible. We see it in Steps to Christ. And if you do a search in the writings of Ellen White on the CD-ROM, you'll find tons of statements to this effect. Uh, here's another quote right below that on the same page. It talks about God's great standard of righteousness, his holy law. Same thing. Uh, Wagner echoed this idea. The law of Ten Commandments then is the measure of the righteousness of God. Elder Jones agreed 100%. Jones said, quote, the commandments of God are the reflection, the transcript, the expression of God's righteousness. So it's in the writings of Jones and Wagner. It's in the writings of Ellen White. And it's clearly in the writings of Paul Isaiah, David, 
the list just goes on and on and on. So to make this, uh, you know, practical, basically what we read in the Bible, when we talk about righteousness by faith, the righteousness of Christ, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we need to understand that righteousness is, is revealed in the Ten Commandments. And to make this real practical for the world that we live in right now, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you know what's right and what's wrong. Uh, I shared with you briefly my experience when I, I grew up in Southern California, and as a, late in my teens, a whole bunch of things happened, and I finally uh, discovered the... I watched George Bannerman on television one time, turned on the TV, saw George's friendly face looking at me with the Bible. He said, hello, friend, welcome to It Is Written Television. And there I was, you know, a, a lost disco dancing, marijuana smoking, cocaine snorting uh, Jew in Southern California who knew nothing about the Bible. And here's this friendly face saying, hello, friend, welcome to It Is Written Television. And he held up this little book called The Day to Remember. And he looked right at me and he said, Steve, or no, he didn't say Steve, but he, he looked at me, well, <laughs> seemed like he did. He looked right at me and he said, friend, call me up and I'll send you this book. So I went to the phone, called the phone number, which uh, actually ran or rang at Andrews University. The AIM operators, so one of them picked up the phone, took my address, sent me the book, I sat down and I read it at my dad's house in Studio City, and halfway through the book, I, I sort of paused, and I remember looking up into the, into the air, into the sky, and thinking to myself, Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, wow, because he was, George Vanderman was talking about the Ten Commandments. And then I, I, by that time, I had, been, I had been visiting some different churches, trying to find a church. I was looking in the phone book, actually, to try to find a church. I'd visited Calvary Chapel, I'd visited Baptist Church, I went to the synagogue. The rabbi wasn't there that day, so I thought, so much for Judaism. Uh, my mother never, when I told her that, she always, that always bothered her. Steve, you should have gone back to Judaism. And anyway, um, I, I was visiting around, and everywhere I went, I was confused. Because every church I went to, or every pastor I talked to, or every Bible study I went to... Uh, they all said different things, and I was mixed up, and I remember just sitting there thinking to myself, Ten Commandments, and I had this mental picture of Ten Commandments rising up in the sky, and I remember just looking and thinking, wow, you know, the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God, and they were written on stone, on solid stone, and, and then I thought to myself, you know, I'm really confused about religion, but something tells me if I stick to the Ten Commandments, I can't go wrong. And that's what led me into the Adventist church. Was that, was that uh, you know, that's what I thought. There's something about the Ten Commandments that is different from any other law that's ever been written by man. It was written with the finger of God, and it was written on stone. And in this world, when everything is up for grabs these days, you know, everything's falling apart. People don't know if they're, uh, you know, which bathroom to use. Uh, am I a, ma a man? Am I a woman? What am I? You know, people are struggling with these things. The world is struggling with what's right and what's wrong. Everything is just going crazy these days. 
And we don't have to be confused. We can know exactly what is right and what is wrong. And God has defined this in very, very, very clear and simple terms for the whole world to understand. And what is right is the Ten Commandments. It's right to put God first. It's right not to have any other gods before, before God. Or uh, it's wrong to bow down to idols. It's wrong to take his name in vain. It's right to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. It's right to honor our parents. It's right to, uh, to not, not kill or not hate. It's wrong to commit adultery or to have any form of, of sexual immorality. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to covet. And then Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments, quote in the Old Testament. The law is summarized in loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So if we want to know what's right and what's wrong, that's it. We don't have to be confused. We can be very, very clear on these issues. And if there was ever a time that God's people need to go out to the world and tell them what's right and what's wrong, it's now. You following me? Righteousness is defined by the law of God. And the reason why it's right and not wrong is because it is a reflection of the character of God. God's character is such that, you know, he wants us to honor our parents. He doesn't want us to steal or lie or commit adultery because God's character is such that he always tells the truth. Jesus always tells the truth. That's why he said over and over and over again, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, because it's his nature. It's his character. Make sense? Um, Many times when I travel in my meetings, I didn't bring them here with me this time. But sometimes I carry a backpack that has two big, big tables of stone. And it's uh, humorous for me to go through security. And I watch them, you know, go through the underneath the belt. And I always watch the security guards, the TSA agents, as they're looking at what's coming through. And I watch to see their faces when they see the Ten Commandments. And sometimes they just go, <laughs> their eyes get really big. Uh, and, and sometimes you can actually, and I've... I've kind of watched, sometimes I can see the monitor too, and I can see where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's, you know, it's right there uh, loudly. And just this last time that I went through for my last meeting in Red Bluff, California, I had, I had the Ten Commandments and I put them through. And uh, one guy was looking at it, and then the, the other, I guess it was her supervisor was there. And she, she just looked at the, at the man and she, and she said, it's the Ten Commandments. <laughs> It's the Ten Commandments. One time they wanted me to take the Ten Commandments out so they could scan them to make sure that they weren't dangerous. And I said, this is the most moral backpack you'll ever find. There's nothing, uh, nothing dangerous about this law. So there's a real place right now in this world for Ten Commandment teaching. We, you know, we don't need to be ashamed of this. We don't need to be embarrassed by this. We should be standing in front of crowds. I do it all the time, in front of audiences holding these big tables of stone. And people look at me like, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. And I go down through them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. 
And, and I tell you, the Holy Spirit, when you do that, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction on people's minds. Their, their hearts are convicted that they've lied or they've stolen or they've committed adultery or they haven't honored their parents or they've, they haven't kept the Sabbath. They've, they've, uh, they've been idolaters. And the list just goes on and on. And that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sins, of breaking the law of God. And I'll talk more about this tomorrow. In fact, you know, I'm just thinking, should I read this quote? I should. I want to read this quote. I'm going to have to find it here. It's not in my notes. I really don't hardly have any notes. I have a few notes. But I want to find a quote here where Wagner uh, actually quoted from Wesley. And it is so powerful. Or maybe I'll just quote from Wagner. Uh, Go to page 47. Page 47 in your book. And there's, a, there's a, a long quote there. The footnote is number nine, which is from E.J. Wagner, Signs of the Times, September 2nd, 1886. And I believe Wagner here is quoting John Wesley. And this is what it says. You have it, page 47. It is the ordinary method of the Spirit of God to convict sinners by the law. It is this which, being set home on the conscience, generally breaks the rock in pieces. It is more especially this part of the word of God which is quick and powerful, full of life and energy, and sharper than any two-edged sword. This, in the hand of God and of those whom he has sent, pierces through all the folds of a deceitful heart and divides asunder soul and spirit, yea, as it were, joints and marrow. By this is the sinner discovered to himself. All his fig leaves are torn away, and he sees that he is wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked, quoting the Laodicean message, which I'll talk about tomorrow night. I have, uh, tomorrow night's meeting is called White Robes for Naked Laodiceans. The law flashes conviction on every side. He feels himself a mere sinner. His mouth is stopped, and he stands guilty before God. And that's a quote from Romans 3, verse 19, which we'll read tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, we'll have a Bible study on Romans 3. To slay the sinner is then the first use of the law, to destroy the life and strength wherein he trusts and convince him that he is dead while he lives, not only under the sentence of death, but actually dead unto God, void of all spiritual life, dead in trespasses and sins. The second use is to bring him to life unto Christ that he may live. It is true in performing both of these offices, it acts the part of a severe schoolmaster. It drives by force rather than draws us by love. And yet, love is the spring of it all. It is the spirit of love which, by this painful means, tears away our confidence in the flesh, which leaves us no broken reed whereon to trust, and so constrains the sinner, stripped of all, to cry out in the bitterness of his soul, or groan in the depth of his heart, I give up every plea beside, Lord, I am damned, but thou hast died. And there, that's powerful preaching. And that was John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, quoted by Wagner. Now go on the opposite page, on page 46. And this is a quote from The Great, Con- the Con- the Great Controversy. And it says, let's see, the footnote is number seven, which is a great controversy, page 467 and 468. 
It says, the first step in reconciliation to God is the conviction of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. 1 John 3, 4, Romans 3, 20. In order to see his guilt, the sinner must test his character by God's great standard of righteousness. It is a mirror which shows the perfection of a righteous character and enables him to discern the defects of his own. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, Psalm 19.7. Without the law, men have no just conception of the purity and the holiness of God or of their own guilt and uncleanness. They have no conviction of sin and they feel no need of repentance. Not seeing their lost condition as violators of God's law, they do not feel their need of the atoning blood of Christ. Now, this is a, this is a consistent theme in the writings of Paul, in the writings of Ellen White, in Steps to Christ, in Great Controversy, uh, and it's consistent in the writings of Jones and Wagner. And basically what they, what they say is that the Ten Commandments is a righteous law. It's God's, it's a reflection of his holy character. It's non-negotiable. It tells us what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. And when we really take a close look at the Ten Commandments through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, and we go down through them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then we summarize God's law as a law of, of unselfish love for God and for your neighbor as yourself, whoever your neighbor is, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, whether it's conservatives or liberals, whoever it is, God's law requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, whoever they may be. And when you really look at the Ten Commandments carefully, and this is what happened to me when I was in uh, San Francisco, when I was praying for the Holy Spirit, when I, I told you yesterday, or earlier today, that when the Holy Spirit convicted me, or the, this impression came to me, pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Spirit of truth. This is going to help you to get out from your crisis. As I began to do that, and I began to study pride, eventually I also began to study the Ten Commandments. The Lord led me, take another look at the Ten Commandments. And I, when I was a kid, I used to play uh, pinball. Anybody used to do that when you were a kid? Pinball. We used to go to the arcades, and we used to, you know, put in a quarter or something and pull the lever back, and the ball would go out, and then it would swing around, and it would hit different little parts of the game, and when it hit it, when the ball hit it, it would light up. And I remember one time I was in San Francisco, and I was praying, and I had this uh, new, new picture of the Ten Commandments. The first time was when I read George Vanderman's book, and that's what brought me into the Adventist church because I was convinced that the Ten Commandments were something that I could rely on. But then when I, six years later in San Francisco, when my spiritual life was struggling, then I went, the Lord directed me to look again at the Ten Commandments, but not just to, to show me what was right and wrong, but to look into my own heart. And then it was like I was playing pinball. And I looked at the first commandment, God is to be number one in my life. Bing, it lit up, just like a ball hit it. And then no idols, bing, it lit up. And don't take God's name in vain. You know, don't call yourself a Christian and act like the devil. 
And I went down, fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy, honor my father and mother, my mom, Sandy Wahlberg, my dad, Gene Wahlberg. And one by one, the commandments just lit up like a pinball machine. And I, it was like my eyes were becoming opened. And I was really starting to see the depth of the law of God, just like Paul did in Romans 7. Paul, the Pharisee, who said, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And that's when he really saw himself as a sinner. And I began to see myself as a sinner. Even though I was a seminary student that had come out of the seminary, I was now a pastor and had two churches, one in San Francisco, a Russian church, one in Pacifica. You know, I was supposed to know all these things. And the Lord was just going deeper and deeper and saying, Steve, you still have a big problem. Even though you've, you know, you've learned all these things, you still have a big problem. When it gets right down to it, ultimately, you are still a sinner. And you need a Savior. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And God convicted me through the Holy Spirit going deep and showing me the law of God. And I, and I can't say that that process is done yet. I think the Lord still, you know, wants to go, he wants to go deep, 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 deep. He's going deep inside his people. Now, once you, once you realize that you are, you are in a sinful condition, as Paul said, through the law is the knowledge of sin, you see righteousness and you see unrighteousness. See, once you see righteousness, then you see unrighteousness. And you realize your need as the Holy Spirit goes deeper, your need rises. Your need for Jesus, right? Now, once we realize that righteousness is defined by the law of God, and we see that we're sinners, and then we open our Bibles to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, and this is going to get exciting. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. I read this on the plane coming over here. The Bible says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called. And what's that name? The Lord, our righteousness. Now, this is a prophecy about Jesus, right? One of many prophecies. And it says that Jesus is going to have a special name. And that name, that, that he shall be called. And the more we call him that, the more we're fulfilling prophecy. When we call him by this, this name, and the name is the Lord, our righteousness. Now, if, now, just follow the definitions. You see, once you understand biblical definitions, like Wagner said, then we can follow the sequence, the biblical sequence, and things start making sense. Righteousness by faith starts making sense. Christ, our righteousness, starts making sense. 
So if righteousness is keeping God's law and Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness, then what does that mean? What does that mean? It means, and I'll, I'm going to show you this. We're going to, I'm going to walk you through some Bible verses. It means that Jesus came down here as a human being, took our nature upon himself, and he lived a life of obedience to the law of God without a flaw, without a stain, without one single defect. You know, if, you have a, if I was wearing a white shirt and the whole shirt was white, but if I ha- all of a sudden had an ink stain on it, you know, then this shirt is stained just with one stain. And there's not a one of us that if you look at the Ten Commandments, that's, that's why Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, he says, there, there is none righteous. And then to make sure that we didn't miss it, he said, no, not one. Now, when, now the word none, what does the word none mean? Yeah, yeah parents, have you ever told your, your kids, what part of the word no don't you understand? You ever heard that? So Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. And what he means is there's not one single human being who has ever lived, and that includes you and that it includes me, who has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly without a flaw from the day of your birth to the day of your death. There's just not one. So we're all in the same boat. We're all commandment breakers, whether we've been Adventist all our lives or whether we haven't. We're all in the same boat. Now, we can become commandment keepers, and we'll get to that. But before we become commandment keepers, we have to realize we're commandment breakers. And, uh, and we've all done this. And once we realize we're commandment breakers and that righteousness is defined by the law of God, then we are ready to appreciate Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Now go back to your Bible. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Luke 2, verse 51. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was in the temple. And he was teaching the uh, religious leaders, and then his parents found him. And then it says that, Uh, Verse 51 says, he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he was subject to them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, when it says that Jesus was subject to them, which commandment was he keeping? He was keeping number five, honor your father and mother. Did Jesus honor his parents? He did. How many days of the year did he do that? He did it all the time. He always honored his parents. He never dishonored Mary or Joseph, not even one time. 
And A.T. Jones, I believe it was at the 1893 General Conference session when he was leading the brethren through a series of Bible studies to help them better understand Christ's righteousness. This was the language he used. He would say that when Jesus honored his father and mother, what he was doing, every time he made a choice to do that, he wove another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you and for me. Yeah, wow. I heard one wow out there. (laughs) Okay, here's another verse. Uh, Luke 4, verse 16. No, 4, 8. Here Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, tempted three times. And in verse 8, Jesus answered and said to the devil, Get you behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan said, You know, if you... you," He he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, If you'll just bow down and worship me, the gall of him to say that... (laughs) to Jesus Christ, the King of kings. If you'll just fall down and worship me, I'll give you everything. And at that point, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So which commandment was he keeping there? He was keeping the first one. That's right. You shall have no other gods before before God. So here Jesus Christ in the wilderness fighting with the devil, hand-to-hand combat, in human nature, tempted just like we are, in human nature, he resisted that temptation and put his father first. And when he did that, he wove another stitch in a, in a robe of righteousness that he was weaving in his own character for you and for me. Another text, Luke 4, 16 Luke 4.16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Here's the easy question. Which commandment was he keeping? (laughs) Right, we all know that, the fourth commandment. And if you ever thought about this, if this was his custom, Jesus did this for 33 years approximately, somewhere around 1,500 Sabbaths Jesus kept. And every single time that Jesus kept the Sabbath holy... Every time he did that, he was weaving another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you. Every time Jesus said, I tell you the truth, which commandment was he keeping? Which commandment says, don't lie? Yeah, number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Jesus never bore false witness. He never broke the Sabbath. He never committed adultery. He never had one idol. He always put his father first. He always loved his father with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And he did that for 33 years without a flaw, without a stain, without yielding to temptation even one time. He's the only one that's ever done that. No human human being's ever done that. So when, when we see the law of God as a law of righteousness... And when we see ourselves as sinners, then what happens is we, we, we see a need. Our need grows. Our need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And then when we look at his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see that perfect, humble, unselfish, clean, holy life like no one else has ever lived, then we see the Lord 
our righteousness. And what that means is that Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. What that means is that he did all of that in our behalf. He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. And he had the goal in mind throughout his whole life, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And at the end of his life, he said, Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I've done it. I've developed in my own life a perfect character, a flawless life of obedience to the law of God in human form. And he, he earned the right to the name the Lord, our righteousness. Right. Isn't that powerful? I tell you, and and, uh, tomorrow we'll talk about that righteousness being given to us as a free gift. And I want to share a few more thoughts with you. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Once we understand what righteousness is, And then we see our own unrighteousness, and then we see Jesus as our righteousness. Things start coming together. There is a power in the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ because it gives hope for all of us, gives hope for us all. Jesus lived a life of righteousness for all of us. And the amazing thing is, is not only did he live a flawless life developing a perfect robe of righteousness for us, but then at the end of his life, in Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus gathered to himself all the commandment breaking, all the other gods, all the idols, all the taking God's name in vain, all the Sabbath breaking, all the dishonoring of parents, all the murder all the hatred, you know, hatred is a violation of the sixth commandment. All the sexual immorality, all the pornography, all the stealing, all the lying, all the coveting, all the hostility to God and the, and the lack of impartial, unselfish love for, for others. Jesus gathered all that into his mind and into his heart. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane he agonized whether he was going to do it, whether he was going to go all the way and pay the full price for human sin. And our holy hero made a choice. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing will prevent me from going all the way through Gethsemane and all the way to the cross and to drink the cup that no human being can drink and survive. Only Jesus can drink the wine of the full justice of God, which I'll talk about in the last meeting, the full justice of God in the cup of the third angel. Only Jesus Christ could drink that cup and come back from the dead. And he did it for you and for me. 1 John chapter 2 Verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the righteous, or with the Father, 
And who is that advocate? We have an advocate with the Father. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's right. And why is Jesus called the righteous? It's because he's the only one. He is unique. You know that the Bible, you probably know this. I I typically say this in front of a mixed audience, not a group of pastors and their wives. But uh, the Bible is the the world's best-selling book that's ever been written. If you look at, uh, of all the books that have ever been published and translated in multiple languages, there's nothing that compares to this book. Because this is God's book. If you look at all the people that have ever lived, by far the most famous individual who has had more books written about him than any other human being, who has more followers than any other uh, religious leader, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, all put together, that one person is Jesus Christ. If you look at uh, the evidence for the resurrection, it's overwhelming. You have a group of uh, disciples who were totally devastated because their Lord had died. His body was taken off and put inside of a tomb with a big stone over it. You had a a Roman guard, uh, somewhere around 100 troops guarding that uh, tomb to make sure that nobody did any shenanigans and got him out. There's no way Jesus could have gotten out from the inside in the dark. There's nobody, no way someone could have stole his body because you've got to get through the Roman guard. And when you look at all the evidence, there's only one logical explanation how you can take a group of totally discouraged, depressed, devastated uh, disciples and turn them around so that they were willing to die for their faith. And that Christianity then spread out like fire in the Roman world, and it was unstoppable. There's only one explanation. One logical explanation, and the explanation is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And there's only one person who has ever lived that can make a claim in front of a crowd and say, which one of you convinces me of sin? I have never committed a sin in my life. And if you can think of one sin, show me. There's no human being that could ever do that except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. No one else has ever done that perfectly from birth to grave. Jesus is the only one who paid the price on the cross for our sins. And Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and he's the only one. Romans 5, verse 17. A few more thoughts. Romans 5, verse 17. I love this verse. Oh, this is a good verse. You know, William Miller used to say, uh, let's have a good dish of Scripture. It was like a meal to have a good dish of Bible morsels. And this is a good morsel. Romans 5, verse 17, Paul said, For if by one man, that was Adam, one man's offense... Death reigned by one. Because of Adam's sin, death has come into humanity and it has reigned. And then he says, much more, they which receive abundance of what? Abundance of grace. I like that. 
Do you, do you want abundance of grace? Do we all need that? Is there any one of us that doesn't need it? We all need it. We need, we need not only do we need grace, but we need abundant grace. We need lots of grace. Those who receive an abundance of grace and of the gift. And what is the gift? It's the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one man, and that is Jesus Christ. So righteousness is God's law. Jesus is our righteousness, and Jesus is offering us a gift. It's the gift of his righteousness. And there's one more quote I want to share with you, and then I'll tell you a couple stories and wind this up if I can find it. It's back in my book. It's from Gospel Workers, page 161. Let me find that. I'm not sure I can find it right away, but I know it. I know it by heart, pretty much. It's the one that says, Ellen White says, that the thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us as a free gift from God is a precious thought. And then she says, the enemy of God and man is not willing that this this truth should be clearly presented. For when it is, she says, his power will be broken. Gospel worker, and I'll find that quote for you. Gospel Workers, page 160. Page 80? Somebody found it. Good. Oh, there it is. That's right. Thank you. Page 80. Down near the bottom. The thought that the righteousness of Christ. Now we know what the righteousness of Christ is, right? Now you know. Now you know what righteousness is? It's the law of God. And you know what the righteousness of Christ is? It's his obedience to the law of God for you in your behalf. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, which means credited to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as the free gift from God is a precious thought. Is it not? The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented. For he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. Yes. Yes, uh, righteousness is... Is the it, righteousness, he said, can I repeat the righteousness, what righteousness is? Righteousness is the character of God. His character is right and not wrong. And that righteousness is revealed in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus Christ kept the Ten Commandments, he kept the principles of righteousness in his life for 33 years while he lived on earth, and he did this for us. He did this in our behalf. He did this so he could earn the right 
to, re, to the title, The Lord Our Righteousness. And he offers to give that righteousness, to credit it to us as a free gift. And when we receive that gift fully, when we really get it, when the light goes on and we understand who Jesus Christ is, when we understand our condition in the sight of God, in the sight of a holy law, and then when we understand who Jesus Christ really is as the Lord, our righteousness, and what he's offering to us as a free gift, when we receive that fully, she says, Satan knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. That's right. You know, some time ago, I was, uh, I, when I first moved up to Idaho, I'm a city boy. I grew up in Los Angeles. And we didn't burn wood as I was growing up. We just had, you know, electrical heat. Well, when I moved up to Idaho, I uh, got a stove. And I got a chainsaw. And I learned how to cut wood. And the fir- I think it was the first winter I was loading the wood, and I didn't really know that much about you need to have dry wood <laughs> versus uh, wood that you've just cut down. I didn't quite understand all that yet. And so uh, as time went on, the smoke began to come back into my house. And I couldn't figure out what's going on. And then I, fi- I finally learned, I talked to a buddy of mine, and I finally learned that if I wasn't burning dry wood, then the, the, the creosol, the smoke, was going to clog my chimney, and it was going to clog the top of the chimney where I had this little uh, screen, and it was going to get all clogged. And then the smoke, instead of all of it going out, some of it was going to come back in to my house. And I was trying to figure out, what do I do about my problem? I've got smoke in my house. Smoke's coming out of the furnace instead of going up. And, you know, and that's just, like, here's a perfect illustration. That's just like a lot of our lives. You know, we have smoke in our lives. And I finally figured out what my problem was. I had a, a number of problems. I was burning the wrong kind of wood. But then I finally figured out that I needed to go up to my, uh, get up on the roof. I need to take that screen off. Need to scrape all that creosol off and clear up the vents so that the air or so that the smoke will go up and not into my house, right? So here's my point. I had a problem. I had smoke in my house. Where was the solution to my problem? Was the solution to my problem trying to get all the smoke out right in front of me? Or was the solution to my problem up on my roof? and going up on top and clearing out the vents up there so the smoke could go out. And once I did that, then the smoke stopped coming into my house. I solved the problem up there, and then the the result was down here. Are you following me? And, And the point is that the more we understand that Jesus Christ is our righteousness up there, and that we look away from ourselves and away from our smoke and away from our problems. And if we look to Jesus as our righteousness. Remember we read in Testimonies to Ministers, page 91-92, she said many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his 
person, his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. And the more we do that, the more we look away from ourselves to Jesus and his righteousness outside of us, then the more power we're going to have inside of us. See what I mean? We look to Jesus out there, and the more we do that, the more we receive power in here. And we'll look at that more tomorrow, that the key to power, the key to victory, the key to joy, the key to happiness, the key to having a successful Christian life and to becoming a commandment keeper in these last days, to truly become a commandment keeper, the, the, the key to that is, the, is the, the base, the foundation, the message that Jesus Christ is our righteousness outside of us who offers us a free gift by his grace. That is the, uh, the component that can change our lives. I'll tell you one more story. I've written another little book. It's in the, Remnant has it in the back there. It's a little book called Help for the Hopeless. Two summers ago, I went through the worst nightmare of my life. And essentially, I'm going to make a long story short, I lost the ability to go to sleep. I could not go to sleep. I was awake four days in a row without any sleep. And I got on medication to try to go to sleep, and that only made things worse. I got depressed. I had all kinds of problems. It was a nightmare for me. And uh, at one point, I got my family together, my, my son and my daughter and my wife. And I said to them, I said, please pray for me. Pray for Dad. Something's happening to me, and I don't know what it is. I don't understand what's happening. But I can't go to sleep at night. I'd lay awake all night. It was terrible. I thought I was dying. I thought my life was over, my ministry was over, everything's over. And I got my family around me and I said, please pray for me. Please pray for dad. And uh, I said to them, I said, if I don't get over this, if I don't figure out why I'm not sleeping, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And my little daughter, at that point, she was nine years old. She looked at me and she said, Daddy, does that mean that you might die? And I looked at her, and this is one of the saddest moments in my life. I looked at Abby and I, said, I just shook my head. I said, yeah, if I don't get over this, yeah. And then at that point, my little girl, blue-eyed blonde, she, she came running over to me. She grabbed me with both arms and she just, she just cried. She just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And she wouldn't stop crying. And I didn't know what to do. I'm holding her thinking, what do I do? Here's my little girl crying in my arms. I said, God, you've got to help me. I've got to be able to sleep. What do I do? <laughs> well, anyway, to make, and this is all stories in this book. And... Uh, to make a long story short, God led me, just like he led me here <laughs> through the storm, he led me to Dr. Neil Nedley at Weimar Institute. 
And I was there at Weimar for three weeks. Dr. Nedley did blood work, and his expert brain looked at my blood work, and he said, Steve, I know exactly what's going on inside you. And the reason why you can't sleep, it's, it's obvious to me. He said, your, uh, your, norepin- your free copper is way high in your brain. Your norepinephrine, which is a um, hormone, is 10 times higher than it should be. And uh, your, your body's under a lot of stress. My blood pressure was 100 and I think it was 196 over 114. And then he looked at me and he said, he said, I've seen this so many times. I know what to do. And he said, don't worry, Steve. He said, we can fix this. Don't worry, Steve. We can fix this. And I looked at him and I said, are you sure? <laughs> he said, yeah. So he recommended supplements and uh, got me off the medication that to, to help me go to sleep, which wasn't helping me. And, uh, and eventually... He, he said, we're going to bring the copper down, the free copper, and we're going to do it with zinc. We're going to increase your dose of zinc. For some reason, my body just doesn't process zinc well. And he said, we're going to up your zinc. And he's been upping it for a year and a half. Now he's got me on 150 milligrams of zinc every day. And that's, that's me. I mean, I'm not trying to prescribe for you, but I'm telling you, that's what I needed. And now that I'm on the zinc and some other supplements that he's giving me, uh, my free copper is going down, my stress level's going down, and, and when I go to sleep at night, guess what? I can sleep, and I'm not on any of those uh, medications. And the Lord used Dr. Neil Nedley to help rescue my life. And, and, and my point in telling you this is that there was, there was a component. There was something that my brain chemistry needed. My brain chemistry looked at through the eyes of an expert who did all the blood work, who knew what's going on inside my head. He knew that I needed, I needed zinc, the right amounts under his care and guidance and with the right components, my brain chemistry and my life would come back together. He said, we can fix this, Steve. We can fix it. And I'm telling you that story because we all need a component in our spiritual lives. Whatever's, go, whatever's going on in your life, God can fix it. He can fix it. He can fix anything that's broken. And our ultimate need, Jesus said, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need to understand the free gift. And the more we do, and the more we receive that gift... By the grace of God, the devil's power will be broken and we'll have power and we'll have joy and we'll have a freedom that we've never known through the righteousness of Jesus.
Let's, uh, let's kneel and let's pray. Lord Jesus. Lord, we kneel before you and we, we look to you. You are the righteous one. And Lord, just as my little girl clung to me and cried, so you clung to the cold ground as you sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, paying the price for our sins of breaking the law of God, breaking your character, breaking your heart. Lord, help us to understand the gospel. Help us to understand the gift of your righteousness. Help us to understand that power that is available to us to help us with the struggles that we all, we all have in this world. Lord, please teach us the message of your righteousness so we can then share it with a lost and dying world so they can have hope and they can have power and they can have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.